Hey there, welcome to the Snakebird Podcast. My name's Josh. And I'm Steve. Together we invite you to join us. As we explore the mysteries of Scripture. The realm of God. And freedom through Christ. So spread out your wings. And slither in place. Because this is Snakebird. Hey, welcome Snakebirds to another episode of the cast. Just like we promised, we're back with part two of our Snakebird profile with our character named Jehu. On part J2. J2. (laughs) That's right. So we're going to join the episode already in progress. Enjoy. So now we land in in chapter 10 of 2 Kings, where Jehu does not stop tending to the house of Ahab. We now see that Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, and Jehu has every intention of getting each one of them, doesn't he, Josh? Yes. Yeah, and okay, this is something that I I had read it multiple times that I've never thought about this. So Jezreel is 25 miles north of Samaria, and it's the capital And he's thinking, okay, I know that I'm the commander and I'm like Maximus and sometimes I have the loyalty of the people. But when you think about it, if I have to go to the capital and lay siege to it, they can defend it. They have walls, they have armies. And and in a way, the, the way that he writes these letters, it's very strategic and it's very smart because he's kind of coming at it from a place of going, um, I'm going to use some mental warfare. Yeah. Uh, I even found a Hitler quote uh, in terms of what he's doing because Hitler said this, mental confusion, contradiction of feeling, indecisiveness, panic. These are our weapons that we use. Oh, well. And so in writing this letter, it's really interesting because as he's saying this to the leaders in Samaria, what he first mentions is find your best option for king out of Ahab's sons, put him in power, and let's do this thing. Because he's kind of hinting at trial by combat, like yeah. one-on-one, mano y mano. Whoever wins between me and him yeah. gets the kingdom. And I don't think I mentioned it earlier, but Jehu's writing letters to these 70 yes. sons in Samaria. That's yeah. what Josh yeah, is talking about. Yeah, he's sending about. letters to the leaders of these these areas because um, he's trying to unite these people against Ahab's descendants. Yeah. He's being smart about it. Yeah, and they panic. <laughs> yeah. He, he sends it to the elders, officials, and guardians throughout Samaria. And um, the letters say, starting verse 2, And now, when this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, as well as the chariots and horses and fortified city and the weapons, select the best and most capable of your master's sons, seat him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. Mm-hmm. He's telling them, this is like that moment where someone drops their sword in a duel, and they have the moment to stick him in the heart, but they say, no, pick up your sword. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what he's doing here. Yeah. He's telling them, y'all prepare because I'm coming and we're going to fight. Mm-hmm. But he's doing it in an intimidating way to where they're like, uh-uh. No, if, if you yeah. got Joram and Ahaziah, we don't stand a chance. We know what's happening here. Yeah. We're, we're with you, all right? Just, yeah. We're done, all right? He already had two kings standing in his way, and he mowed through them. Yeah, and he and he comes at them with this confidence, such a confidence, that they're like, no, well, we're good. You yeah. win. You win. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what do we need to do? Yeah. And they send a reply back to him saying that they surrender everything, and, um, and they're willing to do that. So he sends another letter saying, if you're on my side and will listen to my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel about this time tomorrow. Mm-hmm. He's like, all right, if that's your choice, good. Take their heads and come over here, mm-hmm. which is man. <laughs> Another metal scene. That's what I. This is metal, man. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. 
And there's no hesitation from the non-related leaders in these cities that housed Ahab's remaining household. They slaughtered and cut the heads off of the previous king's sons. And um, they were sent to Jezreel where they were put in heaps at the entrance of the gates. Yeah. They arrived in baskets. And the next thing you know, Jehu's like, put them outside the gates and let people see. Because this was kind of an Assyrian custom, Mm -hmm. showing your dominance and trying to quell any opportunity for rebellion going, this is what happens to anybody that comes against us. Has a very Ninevite feel. It does. Doesn't it? Yeah. Back to the fish slappers. That's right. Because <laughs> that's what they did too. Mm-hmm. So that's to, yeah. your, to your point. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the following morning, Jehu stood out in front of all the people with, with the heads out there at the entrance and everything. And the people are probably wanting to know what in the world's going to going to happen from this point forward. And Jehu tells them that he recognizes the innocence of the inhabitants of these cities and that he was only after the household of Ahab as it was a part of prophecy. Mm -hmm. And from this point, Jehu proceeds to eliminate the great men, acquaintances, and the priests who were directly under Ahab, basically the leaders who were still going to be a cancer left over from the previous corrupt house of Ahab. Mm -hmm. That's the way I read it. Yeah. Yeah. He says, I'm really just carrying out what God wanted me to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, One commentator like Warren Wearsby said, this is doublespeak. (laughs) He's saying like, of course I went after my master, but who killed all these 70 people? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He did say it in a very much so like that. Yeah. And he's like, but they just ended up in our, in our laps and just dead. (laughs) A a strange thing that has happened. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, (laughs) all of a sudden he, he goes again to cleaning up and yeah. he goes after every single person all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel all of his great men and his close acquaintances and his priests he left none of them remaining mm-hmm. yeah and then from from there he heads on to Samaria to mop up the rest of them on the way there he runs into relatives of of King Ahaziah as well mm-hmm. and he ends up killing all of them at the pit of Bethaked and slaughters all of them yeah which I thought was really interesting because it says, uh, first he goes, take them alive, he ordered. So he took them alive and then slaughtered them, like you said, by the well. 42 of them. There's that number again. 42. Yeah, remember the two she-bears mauled 42 youths? Oh. I was like, what does the number 42 have to do with this book of Second Kings? That's a good point. You know, I, I'm going to do some more study after this episode because I know a scholar that touches on that that she-bears number. Okay. So I'm going to go back. I, I didn't catch that. Okay. I I just thought that was it. It's like stuck out in yeah. my head. So Nice. Yeah. Which, okay. Uh, I'm going to talk about this for just a second. Some people are very critical of Jehu right here. Yeah. Because, of course... We know that Ahaziah was not good. He was evil. Mm-hmm. But it's a chance that these actually are descendants of David here that he's wiping out. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's 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 very gray because it's hard to say it's black or white. It's hard yeah. to say if he's wrong or right. It's just it's interesting because he receives a lot of praise from some individuals that look back at church history and he receives a lot of criticism and i'm still on the fence on where i land you know it is it's it's a hard thing i something that just came to mind as you're talking about them being from the the righteous bloodline of david you know even david is a really righteous king he had his moments where yeah. he, he pulled off some pretty dumb stunts that that weren't righteous. Yeah. And so I think of, you know, Jehu, whether this was bad or or 
good. Uh, either way, he he was in the process of accomplishing God's prophecy. Yeah, you made me think of when he was going to wipe out Nabal and all the people in his uh, David? in his household. Yeah, yeah. Until Abigail, the wise wife, came out and brought him a Snickers. Essentially, and was like, "You're not yourself when you're angry." You're angry. <laughs> yeah, and she saved their household, and then he ended up having a stroke and died. And David was like, "I'll I'll just marry you because you're really pretty." Well, I rest my case. Jehu might have just been hangry. <laughs> there you go. And so, yeah. yeah. Maybe it's a couple of days since he ate in the palace. Exactly. And, yeah. And so it could have been, it's a fence-sitting situation. Yeah, we'll talk more about that as we go. Yeah. All right, we digress. Josh, jump us back on, on topic. Okay, yeah. So as he's going now, he's continuing on. And uh, when he departed from there, it says that he met Jehonadab, or Jonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him and he greeted him and he said is your heart right as my heart is towards your heart <laughs> and that's kind of sounds very poetic or very uh crossways yeah i'll read it a couple different versions but he says uh in new living translation are you as loyal to me as i am to you or in the message it says are we together and of one mind in this because um I was doing some research. The Rechabites are a really interesting people group. And you find out a lot more about them in the book of Jeremiah. But it's a group of men who, and, and a culture who have decided to withdraw from regular society. They're very uh, sincere followers of the Mosaic Law, but they refuse to drink wine. Uh, they don't plant seeds. They're kind of um, nomads. Very Nazarite. Yeah, yeah. They're they're very um, picky choosy in how they operate, but God really honors them because it just seems like they've said we're going to withdraw from society to a degree, and we're going to become righteous. And apparently, this Jonadab was very um, respected. Uh, and so for Jehu, as this incoming king, to all of a sudden have Jonadab on his side, it was kind of like a running mate. Wow. It's, it, it's, it's a very good choice in Vice P. Yes, yes. Because he's got this guy who's a faithful follower of the Lord that is now on his side. And again, this is one of those gray areas because they go, okay, is this righteous or is this like him just looking for credence in what he's trying to do? Because the next verse, as he says, is like, by the way, you want to see how, uh, like first and foremost, he says like, Hey, take my hand and come up into my chariot. Like, let's actually be riding mates. Let's be running mates. Let's be riding mates. Let's, why don't you show your support of me by coming along with me? Mm-hmm. And then he says, and let me show you my intensity by showing you my zeal. Yeah. He says, let me show you how zealous I am for yes. God. Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So they had him ride in his chariot. And right here, some people say this is where you start to see cracks in who he is. Although he's already been murdering people that might have been outside the family of Ahab. Mm -hmm. Some say this is where he's showing his pride. Yeah, this was an act of of strategic. um, It was a strategic play rather than trying to accomplish God's. Yeah. Yeah. This is where the motive overtook the mission. Yeah, you know, God got you. And yeah, we'll kind of touch on that, that character. I know I do at the end. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Okay. That's a good point out. And so, what it leads to is, 
again, to me, one of the most metal stories in all of scripture, because it comes to a point where uh, he realizes there's still a lot of Baal worship in our in our nation. This is one of the most sly, sneaky things, like you said, in all of scripture. This is, when I read this, I was like, that dog. Yeah. Man. Yeah. (laughs) So tell it, Josh, what does he do next? Okay. So you come to verse 18 and I, again, this is one of those verses where I had to look it up uh, a couple different ways, but he literally says to the followers of Baal, he says, "Ahab, Ahab served Baal a little, Jehu will serve him much, which all I could think of was like apes together strong because <laughs> the message says it this way. Ahab served Bell small time. Jehu will serve him big time. <laughs> the message has a way with words. Yeah. yeah. And he's going to throw a rager for the followers of Baal, like yeah. this all out worship night afterglow, you know, incense burning. I mean, it's going to be yeah. the, the top nightclub in all of the kingdom of Israel for anyone that just considers themselves a worshiper of Baal. Yeah. He tells them to summon all the prophets of Baal, all the worshipers and all the priests. Mm-hmm. He says, let no one go missing because I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever's missing, in fact, shall not live. Yeah. <laughs> He's yeah. like, you're coming to my party, man. It's going to be so <laughs> great. Yeah. And, uh, they started, uh, you know, putting out flyers and they made a Facebook event. Yeah. <laughs> and all these Baal worshipers came. It says not a man was missing. Yeah. This is, you know, Ahab was wicked. This is wickedness on steroids. And yeah. all of the wicked people are like, yeah. Yeah. And then they also brought out their costumes because <laughs> they had their special robes. <laughs> and he was like, make sure you're dressed up for this. I want to I want to be able to identify you as a worshiper of Baal. And that comes into play in a minute. Uh-huh. He really does want to identify yeah. them. Yeah. And he, he tells his captains and he tells Jonadab, search and see that there are no servants of the Lord here with you, but only worshipers of Baal. Yeah. This is a Baal only party. Yeah. <laughs> and they're about to bail. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> and, and he even goes as far as places 80 men mm-hmm. on the outside of this um, this temple of Baal, this arena, arena yeah. of Baal. That Ahab and Jezebel had built. Yeah, the house of Baal. Yeah. And he's got 80 people on the outside of it. And he, go, he goes as far as telling these 80 men that if they allow even one person to escape what's fixing to happen, then their life will be taken in place of the person that escaped. Yeah. Which so he this is something that he's like, I, you know I love it when a plan comes together. Uh-huh. This plan better come together because your life depends on it. Yeah, I'm getting rid of everyone. There's that zeal peeking yeah. through. Yeah, yeah. Which is you know it's a, it's like that part the climax in a movie where you're just like on the edge of your seat. Yeah. And okay, so some people say that either he provided the sacrifice for the priest to go in and start off the thing, okay, or he himself was actually like involved in this where he brought in the sacrifice kicked it off and then uh excused himself and let them kind of carry it on okay and i could just imagine like again you're saying the movie setting of him wearing this robe you know and he's got like his uh his 
SEAL Team 6 uh, clothes on underneath, you know, because he's got the Matrix uniform where he's got all these guns lined up on his jacket in person and everything. Yeah, that's a and, good one. Uh, and so he goes in there and he starts off and he's like, we're going to kick off this worship of Baal. And it's just like some kind of like awesome rock concert for them. And the next thing you know, it just changes tone. Yeah. Right there. Send them in and they, they start. They start popping every single one of them with the edge of the sword. Yeah. Killing them all. I imagine that since it was a church service to them, probably a lot of them didn't come armed. They probably came just ready to party. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. They they were not expecting it at all. No. And he has them all slaughtered, every single person in there. Not one was left. They take out all the decor of Baal, all the memorabilia, and... And, you know, everything a part of that shrine, and they, they brought it out and burned it. And then they, they set the ashes of what was once that shrine to Baal into a giant communal latrine, <laughs> also known as a toilet, basically. A public a toilet. Giant public toilet. The ashes of what was left so they could pee on it. Just, yeah. I don't mean to be crude, but that, I mean, that's just, that's what happened. That's what he turned it into. Yeah. From henceforth. That's how much disrespect he was throwing on yeah, this idolatry. This site of Baal worship will now be used for yeah. public toilets. Yeah. It's, it's an insane scene. Isn't that so crazy? It's nuts. It's I, a wild scene. That's why I love this story, man. I know it's just wild. I mean, and it says, thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about somebody wanting to do something. He he did something. Yeah. And what we get into next is real sad. But I just, for a moment, resting on that and like the the guts that it took to pull this off and mm-hmm. the secrecy that he had to like hold with all of his ranks and his men and yeah. and just again the the passion to follow through with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's an intense story and. You know, at the end of this story, we see that that Jehu did an unparalleled job of eradicating the worship of Baal. But we see that there remains in the very last twist of this story something extremely sad. And for whatever reason, Jehu did not eradicate some ideology um, and some physical remains of golden calves at Bethel and Dan. Mm -hmm. He, for whatever reason, made an allowance for just a little. Yeah. Uh, You know, he was so zealous in eradicating idolatry, and he went to such lengths to accomplish that. But at the end, he seemed to harbor just a little bit of idolatry, almost like that last piece of sin in his mind was exempt because of how much of the others he abolished. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. But I only wonder because you got to wonder why why did he do that? Uh, Yeah. It makes you wonder because I know why Jeroboam set up those golden calves. Mm hmm. It was because he didn't want the people to go south to Judah to worship in Solomon's temple where the presence of God was supposed to be. And then for them to be like, we should be one nation again and rip the kingdom away from him. Yeah. And I don't know if maybe Jehu had this fear in the back of his heart going, I have to leave these golden calves up because I don't want that same thing to happen. I don't know. Yeah. It's it's something that... um, you know, and even we see God commends Jehu for his unwavering obedience and in, in, in getting rid of Baal worship. But, 
you know, Jehu accomplished the whole thing with an underlying motive, it seems, mm-hmm. that we see at the end of the story. It was driven by an unrighteous heart. At least it turned that way at some point in the story. Yeah. Whether it started off really well or, or if that underlying motive was always there, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. But we, we see that with, with some of these kings. Like Saul, we saw that. Yeah. And it's wild because for Jehu, there's a reward and also a punishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because God comes in and says, because you've done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. But then it says, but Jehu took no heed or was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam who had made Israel sin. Yeah. And so it does seem like it was a towards the end. It, it, there was a turning of the heart, perhaps. Yeah. And, you know, God began to dismantle, we see, Israel from that point forward until Jesus came. Mm-hmm. After this point of Jehu, after this, you know... It's it was a, just a very sad deal because, like you said at the beginning of the episode, this was a small window of light in in a very dark, idolatrous um, span of Israel's existence, mm-hmm. and um, this was like one of those turning points where it could have gotten better, but but from Jehu forward, it becomes it, it gets dismantled until Jesus. Yeah, yeah, and all of a sudden it takes out everybody east of the Jordan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What do you think about Gad? And Reuben systematically, and, yeah, yeah, and the Gadareans are the ones who had the pigs in Jesus's day, which I mean, for a Jewish person to be around a pig should have been a huge red flag, and yeah, not good. And <laughs> this was that beginning of that downfall. Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite a, an amazing story, and the twists don't stop even at the very end. Mm-hmm. It's pretty wild. Yeah. And I, as far as the story goes, Josh, I, I don't really have much more other than takeaway points. Is there anything you're wanting to add? So one other place that Jehu is mentioned is in Hosea chapter 1, verse 4, uh, which you realize that Hosea had to marry a prostitute, and then he had some children with her. And one of the children, uh, this is what it says. It says, Call this boy Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. And so um, some have asked, and we'll kind of discuss this, I'm sure, did Jehu go too far in his carrying out of God's edict against the house of Ahab? And so (laughs) just in doing a search, I found two completely differing views. And so I wanted to present each of them real quick. Uh, The first one said, yes, he did, because he wiped out all who remained in the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all of these great men and his close acquaintances and his priests until uh, he left none remaining. And uh, we talked about how the men that he wiped out from Ahaziah might have been David's descendants. And this is what one person said. He said, we must learn a lesson from these people. It doesn't matter how hard we work for the Lord. If we aren't truly obedient to his word, may we always be careful not only to do the Lord's work, but to do his work in his way and in his strength. Mm-hmm. And so they were they were saying that maybe even Jehu wouldn't have lost part of the kingdom if he had some of these wise advisors of Ahab's to call upon saying, hey, can you help me out in these matters of state? Yeah. Which, uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't, 
I don't know if you want to pull from the cabinet of the previous corrupt administration. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, because, I mean, I, I respect the the person who answered this, but I was like, eh, that sounds a little shady to me. Because yeah. I lean more towards he didn't go too far when you talk about eradicating sin. Um, because when you say, uh, from the standpoint of no, he didn't go too far, somebody said this, as the verse seems to indicate, Jehu's family, which was northern Israel's last multi-king dynasty, is going to be punished because of the bloodshed at Jezreel. The only possible reference seems to be where at Jezreel, Jehu kills Joram, Ahaziah, Jezebel, and Ahab's descendants. However, this seems to be problematic when we compare that to 2 Kings 10.30, where God says, because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart. So it seems like the Lord is pleased with Jehu's actions in mm-hmm. killing the idolatrous kings of Israel and wiping out Baalism from the land. So why does Hosea 1.4 seem to indicate that Jehu's family will be punished for the bloodshed of Israel? Well, the above translations come from the NASB. Other translations are giving uh, the same idea. For example, the NIV translates the phrase, I will soon punish the dynasty of Jehu on the account of the bloodshed of the Valley of Jezreel. However, in Hebrew, it says, I will visit the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. This leads to an interpretive issue of what does the blood of Jezreel refer to? Does it refer to Jehu's wrongful action? Or is it more likely, in this person's opinion, does the blood of Jezreel refer to the outcome of the slaughter at Jezreel? In other words, what Jehu justly accomplished at Jezreel will now be done to his family because of their own iniquity. And so I, I just, did he go too far? I don't think so in terms of him eradicating sin. I think where his downfall is is his zeal and his refusal to turn wholeheartedly to follow with his whole heart yeah but you know i can see i can honestly see it both ways because Mm -hmm. it wasn't exactly worded that way either yeah so as far as the heart goes so i I can kind of see it both ways i'm a little bit um you know on the fence on that just because you know the bible doesn't always give us everything that was done yeah. It could have been a multifaceted thing where it was a combination of that was a point where his heart started to turn mm. and he did some things that he wasn't supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. I agree whole, wholeheartedly because it's one of those things where we might not know until we get to heaven. Yeah. We just kind of um, extrapolate our own opinion and go, okay, well, yeah. and we wrestle with it. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, I say that I'm on the fence. One of my takeaway points really kind of makes me look like I'm. I'm on one side of the fence uh, in more a judgmental way towards... <laughs> towards... Well, he was. <laughs> no, I was talking about you. Though. I know. I'm just joking. I know. <laughs> he, uh, Which is... Because that leads us right to our application, right? It, it does. It does for me. And I'll, I'll just go ahead and jump into that. Um, and it, my takeaway point, I have two of them. The first one's a little longer, but it's allowing sin to remain in our hearts. And I I never want to come across to anyone like we as Christians have to be perfect. Uh, There are so many sins that we constantly battle and we fall short every single day in some form or fashion. 
But I also don't want to use that reality as a crutch. Mm. Uh, while we will always have sinful struggles on this side of heaven, there's also something called a sin unto death found in 1 John 5.16. And I'm not going to unravel or attempt to unravel the debates around that verse. But I do know that there's a condition described throughout the New Testament that points to an unrepentant heart. A heart that has a form of godliness but does not partake in the power of eternal life. And this is a condition that we as Christians must be aware of because if we start down that path, there can be a point of no return. And it starts with protecting secret sin, sin that we knowingly refuse to let go of. Uh, the condition is described systematically in James 1, 14 through 15. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. So we see that the root of sin that leads to, to death is lust. And that Greek word for that is epithemia, which translates desire, passionate longing, eagerness for. Not necessarily sexual, like, like many would think in the English language. But this is the same word used in Second Peter 1, 4. He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust. And that lust is a harbored desire of sin that we know is there, and we refuse to let go of it. Mm. If we nurture the secret lust, then it'll eventually take to its form of sin, and then it'll grow like a rebellious and undisciplined child to the point of death. So, listener, my, my takeaway is simple. Make sure your heart is right. You might have a hundred instances in a day where you sin, but make sure it's not the type of sin that you've made exceptions for, um, like Jehu might have done with those golden calves. Mm -hmm. And one way you can pinpoint these sins is observe the discomfort you feel when you commit them. Uh, does it tear you up when you struggle with a repeated sin? If so, that's good. But if you have a heart of in indifference when you repeat these things, these sins, these transgressions, there might be a serious problem spiritually building. So um, that that's one thing that I pulled from, from Jehu's life. There seemed to be, though he had a ton of zeal, he had a lot of of accomplishing God's work, there was an underlying holding of something else that wasn't right mm -hmm. that that turned at the end yeah and so um that that kind of that kind of leads me into my next one which is finish strong but josh do you want to take anything from there yeah i just wanted to talk about obedience because yeah. again zeal without obedience is like firing firing a uh rocket without an intended target yeah i mean it's just going to go anywhere it wants and that's kind of what happened with uh, with Jehu, it seems like, in the end. He didn't reach his intended target of saying, I'm going to eradicate everything that shouldn't be there. And that's the problem with turning a blind eye. Because as much as we want to um, be looking at ourselves and really practicing self-confrontation, a lot of times we have to do that that spiritual inventory and ask, what am I turning a blind eye towards? That's a good point. Because, I mean, there's even things that we might not even consider sin until God reveals them to us, and then we have to deal with them. Mm -hmm. Like, one of them, you know, you talk about the American sins where it's like, is gluttony an issue mm. or greed? Yeah. You know, um, what do I do with my money? And and these things can rear their ugly heads, and, and a lot of times, if we've been so comfortable with them, 
we don't even realize that we're doing them. Yeah. And so I, uh, I appreciate what you said. I, I just think that there is a lot of, um, there is a lot of following God when we choose to be fully obedient. God's going to allow those things that shouldn't exist to be rooted out of our lives. And I think if, uh, if Jehu had become fully obedient, I think he would have torn those golden calves down in a second, just like he zealously went after the followers of Baal. Mm. And it's sad that it doesn't read that right after he did that Baal thing where we were like, ah, you know, he took down Christian Baal. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't didn't go right out to those golden calves and smash them into dust Mm -hmm. and create another public toilet right there. Yeah. It's kind of kind of like a firecracker. He he went off with the bang, and yeah. it was magnificent yeah. for a while. But um, and that kind of leads to my my next one, which is finish strong. Uh, one of the more ironic things I pulled from this story was that Ahab was the cause of judgment because of a lifelong defiance to God, but in the end he received mercy for himself because he repented. Whereas Jehu, the seemingly valiant hero who followed every command of God, obliterating idolatry from the land, he reached the end only to finish with a bad heart. Mm. And, you know, the villain started off bad but finished righteously, or, you know, compared to what he was. Mm -hmm. And the hero started off good but finished badly. And so it's one of those crazy endings that should speak pretty loudly in each of our hearts because it, it speaks so loud. I know to me is because I I don't want to be that one who had a great season of I was a firework. I went off like crazy, but then it was a fizzle out Mm -hmm. because God doesn't call us to be a firecracker. He calls us to be steady, strong, hold fast Mm -hmm. to the end. And um, so that that was the uh, my second and last takeaway point for you listeners is finish strong. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Uh, one pastor used to say that he would take his family out to the beach to watch fireworks and they would watch the fireworks and then it'd be over and he would be still looking, you know, sitting on the blanket, looking up and they'd be like, what are you looking up grandpa? And, and he would be looking at the stars and he's like, think about how long they've been there shining (laughs) and how faithful they've been and how they've stayed the course. That's a great sense. example. Yeah, I thought, man, that's that's deep. Yeah. Brother, really that's deep. <laughs> <laughs> so I just have a couple application things. Um, one of them, and we alluded to this earlier, so I got to come back and pay off that story, yeah. is that Jehu, like I said, he might have already been anointed as king before this young mad lad came and oh, yeah. said, hey, can we talk? This is interesting. Because... Um, Way back in the day, (laughs) uh, Elijah, while he was still in his heyday, he had that huge showdown with the prophets of Baal, and he ended up, you know, um, saying, add, add water, add water. And then God came down and consumed that sacrifice. Well, right there, he got freaked out because Jezebel wanted to kill him and he ran away and God said, Hey, um, come to this cave. And uh, as he's at this cave, all of a sudden there's uh, a fire and there's an earthquake. And he's like, did you hear me in the fire? And he's like, no. And did you hear me in the earthquake? No. And, and all of a sudden he heard him in the still small voice. And, and God was like, that's how I speak sometimes. And right then God decides, hey, 
you're going to anoint your successor, Elisha. But at that moment, he also says, go and anoint Hazel as the next king of Syria, but also anoint Jehu as the next king of Israel. And so this was like years and years before this. Wow. And it doesn't say that Elijah didn't do that, but it also doesn't say that he did. And I have to believe Elisha was pretty obedient obedient to God's direction. So there is a chance that he went and anointed Jehu and then Jehu just had to wait for this calling to be fulfilled. Yeah. And and applicationally, uh, if that is the case, there are times where we have to be willing to wait for God's instruction and, and God's direction of our calling. You think of Moses as a great example of wanting to deliver the children of Israel and he decides to take it in his hands because he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite and he goes and he confronts the Egyptian and he kills him. And uh, I heard somebody say this, great plan, poor execution, because he literally <laughs> executed the Egyptian. And he comes back the next day and he sees two Israelites fighting and he says, hey, don't do that. And they're like, what, are you going to kill me and hide me too? And he's like, oh. you know, and he gets all freaked out and he flees. It's not for 40 years until he comes back into action. Yeah. And so we don't know what happened, but what we want to do is say, are we willing to wait until we have clarity for our calling? And I know that's kind of off the beaten path in terms of um, application, but I thought it really stood out to me because there are people who say, I believe God has called me to do this. Yeah. And the question is, is are you willing to wait until he says go? Yeah. And are you willing to go when he says go? Because we never want to outrun God and we don't want to get ahead of him, but we definitely don't ever want to fall so far behind that yeah. he's just moving on without us. Well, that's a, another fascinating twist in the story, because if that's true, and I honest, I think it is, because, I mean, that'd make perfect sense. God told Elijah to do it. And I think he probably did it. That that would mean that, that Jehu had a lot of years thinking about mm -hmm. I, I don't know how how long would it have been i think it would have been probably 10 to 20 years if that's true then he would have had that time to think about when this was coming mm -hmm. you know so that that's another that's another thing to think about yeah in this and story. i i didn't put the timeline together that quick but i yeah. know elijah gets carried away and then elisha becomes the prophet and there's yeah, yeah. you know there's some time frame it's it's got to be at least before ahaziah the brother of Joram uh, takes... We could be safe in saying years. Yes. So it's definitely yeah. years yeah. he would have had to think about it. Yeah. To sit there and, okay, that was weird. Kind of like David knew David. he was going to be king exactly. before Saul, and he, he stayed the course and was a servant and was a, a music player in the court. And yeah. The whole time he knew he was the rightful king, but he wasn't yet. A ruddy 17-year-old, yeah. 16 or 17-year-old anointed, yeah. and then not king for a long time. Yeah, that's another thing to think about in this yeah. story. That's, yeah. that's a good or thing to point Joseph. out. Joseph. Oh yeah, Joseph by dream, you know, by dream, a, yeah, and and then he's next thing you know he's in Potiphar's palace, and then yeah. he's in jail, and all the all this time waiting for God to do what He said He was going to do through dream. Yeah, I, that's some good application. Uh, are you willing to wait? Yeah. Uh, another thing that I saw is talking about the world wanting compromise, and I pulled this from both mother and son coming to Jehu and saying, "Is it peace?" Jehu. And again, his response to them, 
what peace can we have together as long as your harlotries and your witchcraft are so evident as so much. And that's what we have to say to the world. Because I know that there's differences of opinion on whether Jehu did the right thing. But this man, in a way, he's my hero, at least the early part of him. The part of me that loves movies like Rambo <laughs> loves Jehu because this dude throws down. And when, when it comes to compromise with the world, Jehu, at least, again, the early version of, of him that we meet, he isn't giving an inch. And I feel like that's the way I want to live my life in response to a world that says, hey, we can coexist. Is it peace? You know, can we just say that uh, that you can live in this world and not stand for Christianity or you can watch us um, just completely profane God and be okay with it? Can't we mesh this all together? And the answer is no, we can't. No. Exactly. Can't we all just get along? Well, yeah, we're going to love you, but we're going to love you into the kingdom. We're going to make sure that we love the sinner, but not the sin. And that's, you know, that's real talk. That's where we're seeing so much conflict these days is mm-hmm. it's it's not enough to love them. You've got to accept what they do for yeah. your own. Well, and, and even, I okay, so we're talking about living as Christians in the world. That's also living just as a Christian within yourself. Yeah. There is no room for compromise. That's true. Because the moment that you compromise, all of a sudden, you're like Jehu, who the next thing you know, starts off so strong. And his, look at the way his story ends. Yeah. You know, because that's what we talk about compromise is like adding that little bit of poison to your food. Yep. And it's like, this shouldn't hurt. But you add arsenic to your orange juice you're dead. Yeah. You know, so. And, and like I mentioned earlier, we, we don't want to come across as saying that there there's no, uh, you can't have any compromise, therefore you can't have any sin in your life. You should strive to not have yes. any sin in your life, yeah. but it, obviously it's, it's going to be there, but it's. It's, it's latent this, compromise. Yeah, constant heart of, of trying not to. Exactly. In God's strength. and Yeah. I just, you know, there, I've, I've run into people before that hear that and they're like, I'm done. Oh, yeah. You know, no. so, and I know what you're yeah. saying there. And we just, we want to battle against the sin in our lives. We never want to accept it. Yeah, exactly. We want to get up and we want to do battle and go like, this is not going to win today. Exactly. Because that is what progressive sanctification is all about. Yeah. And there's never going to be, be a time until we reach heaven and we reach glorification that we're not going to battle sin. But maybe today is like that step where you're like, I'm not going to struggle with this specific sin anymore. Yeah. You know, that is part of picking up your cross daily. It's yeah. that daily fight yeah. for you know, Mm -hmm. and so my last application would just be to caution those who are zealous because zeal is great. And I've seen so many people start with so much zeal, but if it lacks direction, that's where it gets scary. Yeah. Because it's like that rocket that you fire that has no destination. Yeah. Or a bullet. It's like like putting a mortar just (laughs) on the ground with no tube. Yes. Just just let it go. Yeah. Yeah. So um, zeal with direction is important. It's it's like the faith and works discussion Mm -hmm. because without you know without zeal, then you um, 
you just have a purpose, but you're like, I'm not motivated to do anything. Yeah. But then if you have a, if you have only zeal and no purpose, then you're just, you're going to be trying to work your way to heaven yeah. in a sense. And, and you're going to be very chaotic. Yeah. And you're, you're going to wear yourself out. Mm-hmm. So there's a partnership in that. And I think, again, that was a place where Jehu was lacking. Yeah. So good application. Yeah. Amen. What a character, huh? Yeah, he really was. I yeah. hope y'all enjoyed it as much as we did. I, I've read through it, you know, in the one-year Bible and everything, but getting getting to study in depth, his, his story really threw me for a loop. Mm-hmm. It's such a crazy story. Yeah, and again, I think I mentioned this. There were things that I pulled out of this one that I had never seen before, like Naboth getting his sons killed as well, mm. or Jehu being so strategic in his handling of the capital of Samaria going, why don't you guys set up your king and then I'll come and fight him in a hand-to-hand combat or just the way he was uh, using mental warfare. Yeah, I, I've never seen that, never thought of it before. Yeah, it's a, just a wild story. Yeah. So that's the life of Jehu. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We're just going to take on a uh, snakebird profile every so often. And if you want to hear anybody profiled, please send us a message. We would love to hear from you uh, on what Bible character you might want us to talk about. That's right, guys. And um, if you find it in your heart, please share and subscribe to the podcast. Share it with a friend, whatever. If it's helping you, chances are it'll help them. And this is a community. We're trying to spread the gospel and look at things perhaps that, that not everybody looks at. Yes. And if you want to leave a review that really helps us to spread the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long, long way. That'd be awesome for us. And the way that you can connect with us is to either do it on Facebook, through Facebook Messenger, or our page, or you can also... Uh, send us an email at connect at basnakebird.com. That would be amazing. Yeah, please reach out to us, guys. We thrive on your feedback, and it's just, it really it really gives us direction in what y'all are wanting to hear and topics and all that. So, so please reach out. That'd be fantastic. Okay, snakebirds, always remember, whatever you do, wherever you go, no matter what life throws at you, there's never been a better time to follow the words of Jesus. And be a snakebird. Snake